is there merit? And is this individual capable of taking it through? And if they've already done it or been doing it before and this is what they need and this is how they see the market, you know, that's, that's one thing. Um, if it's just on the merits of whether this is a good idea, and that's one of the things I've tried to do is try to take the risk out of it. The risk out of it. The risk out of it. Welcome. This is Jeff Barnes with the Angels Exits and Acquisitions Podcast. And we are going to be talking with David Carmel today, who is the founder and CEO of DealRocket.com and StartupRocket.com. And we talk a lot during this episode about innovation and ideas and leadership inside of businesses and how you can leverage that and find the right fit when it comes to your portfolio or investing. Or if you're a startup looking for uh, the ability to raise capital or looking for ways to raise capital, uh, we talked a little bit about that as well. So go ahead and tune in, watch the episode, subscribe, share, like. Thanks so much for being here. Take care. Welcome to Angels Exits and Acquisitions, the place to learn how to fund, scale, exit, and massively profit as an angel investor or entrepreneur. Brought to you by the Angel Investors Network. And now, here's your host, Jeff Barnes. All right. Welcome back, everyone. Jeff Barnes here with another episode of Angels, Exits, and Acquisitions for our podcast. And I am joined today with David Carmel. David, how are you doing today? Great. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So happy to have you here. Now, David, we were just chatting a minute ago about a little bit of your background, and we're going to get into what it is you do now. But I want to start at the very beginning because you have a unique background for somebody who ultimately became an entrepreneur and an investor and that is that you you started and you worked in law school and you also had a union job at some point. So why don't you give the listeners a little bit of your background and just kind of give us your, your story about how you ended up and where you are now starting at such a, a unique background for an entrepreneur. I'll be happy to. First, let me thank you for having me and thank you for all you do. Um, this is a real uh, benefit to all of us out there to like to learn and don't have a license on brain. So I just want to thank you, Jeff, for having me. Absolutely. To answer your question, um, I think as I told you, some people, I have always said I'm one of the biggest hypocrites you ever meet. A colleague in mine says you're one of the best pivot. And um, I've always found that hard, fat, hard beliefs and things a lot of times make you realize that you are not seeing the entire picture. And so I grew up in a labor union environment. My grandfather was a labor union attorney. My father was a very prominent one as well. Even back on Bamitsu, we had a dollar sixty-five no more button on. So, you just for the sake of argument, say I didn't have the best views or positive views about corporate America or uh, business is one thing. On the other hand, my grandfather was a, an entrepreneur, so um, you know I I always paid attention to that and worked at his store and different things. And I've done most manual labor jobs out there. I've done I've done ditches. I've done trucking, lifting, you know, manual labor. So all those things, by the way, absolutely fabulous background for getting involved because once you learn how to do other people's jobs, you realize what it takes, how long it does, and where it fits in the big picture. And if you have a critical mind, it's always good to file those things away and realize that these are the benefits that you can bring to the table and when somebody one day tries to tell you that all you've ever done is sit on your butt all day at 35,000 feet, 
Well, I'm going to tell you that when you talk to him about um, how to bend your knees when you're lifting so they don't hurt your back and you know, these different type of ways, they look at you in utter surprise. So, you know, from that background, I think it's been great. It's opened up my eyes. I've had different union businesses too, so for negotiations. But on the other hand, it realizes what it means to be people-oriented in an employer company that has people in mind. Because one of the things you want to do is try to be two steps ahead and be able to look around the corner and understand where your people fit and where they're going to fit to two jobs from now or two steps from now, because that keeps you growing and keeps you awake and keeps everybody on their toes. And when I came out of law school uh, by fluke, I uh, had the chance to be the assistant to the chairman and CEO of our large public company. And that really opened up my eyes. And I realized that, um, wow, there's a lot more to life than um, negotiating labor contracts and and getting caught up in a lot of rhetoric that didn't make a lot of sense. So I'll leave it from that. And um, that's eventually how I got into becoming an entrepreneur and starting my own businesses and things like that. And I give my boss, I give my old boss, who was a CEO, unbelievable credit for taking a chance on me, which is one thing I've learned. And he didn't think it was taking a chance. It's kind of interesting. He said to me one day, why do you think I hired you? And I say, I really don't know. He goes, you know what? You never, you always tell me what's on your mind and you don't sugarcoat it. Now, I may not like it, but 24 hours later, I'll respect the hell out of you. That's something that people should remember today. Because a lot of times, the higher up you get, the more isolated you become, particularly in the larger organization you have, is because people only start sugarcoating news based on what they think you want to hear. And that's part of it is based on either politics of your company or maybe you don't have the right communication model going on. So just think about it from that perspective. Man, there's so much to unpack there. So first and foremost, you know, obviously going through and, and having manual labor jobs. You know, I started my, you know, my, my very first actual paying job was picking up rocks and putting them into a five-gallon bucket to take them off of the new softball field that the city decided that bulldoze our, our baseball field so they can make a softball field because the softball field made them money. Um, yeah, so I was kind of uh, adding insult to injury because I love playing baseball in that field and they got rid of it. And I had to go pick the rocks up. I also realized that at, you know, 13 years old, picking up rocks and putting, filling a five gallon bucket up with rocks is uh, not a smart idea when you can't lift the bucket. So, um, you know, you, you learn a lot the hard way, especially when you're younger, but yeah, having those, those actual jobs where eventually you become the manager of a company or running a company, having that appreciation for what the workers are doing, the people that are actually doing the work uh, really can uh, paints a really great picture for you as, as a manager and a leader, right? It's, I think it does build in a little bit of empathy just having gone through it yourself. And so, um, yeah, I think that's a really important lesson for a lot of leaders today is to actually, you know, put in the hard work from time to time and realize that you know, not everything is all roses and, and sitting in a cushy office, even if it, like, you know, we talk about, you know, people putting in and burning the, the, the candle at both ends. Right. And, it seems like a lot of work when you're staring at a computer, you're typing away, but this is not work in my opinion, right? It's not physical labor. You, know, you go back to, you know, busting concrete bags or digging ditches, like you were saying, or for me working in the Navy and, you know, swabbing decks and cleaning bilges, you know, that that's actual work. And 
you know, it, it's hard to have a lot of sympathy for people that are complaining about how hard life is when they haven't had a physical labor job of any kind. So I think that does uh, change your viewpoint a little bit. Uh, would you Absolutely. agree with that? You know, if you remember, uh, Ronald Reagan used to go back and cut wood at his ranch and chop it to get out there, remind himself of what it's like to actually hold a quarter real job and, and things like that. So, you know, physical exertion and also it's the teamwork working with people, right? Yeah. I mean, people have to learn how to trust, particularly with the higher, you know, weight or the higher, uh, even in the warehouse where you're picking, you got to rely on different people. It's not, it's processes and different things. And, um, people have to learn how to go ahead and, um, you know, trust one another, excuse me, one second, but the, um, you know, that's one of the most important things. And that's part of leadership is about what you say. Are you all wind up in no fastball? Or are you actually have words and meaning? The words actually have meaning and you're putting policies and action behind them. And that's what people really want today. And um, that's what you learn being on the line, because quite frankly, you don't have two hours to digest whether something should go this way, right, or be picked up that way. You've got to make a call like instantly. And um, that's one of the great things about that, or even like canoeing and different things. When you work with rapids, you got it, or you can't stop and say, oh, you know, I wonder, I got three hours to decide it. No, you got to make a decision how to handle the V and, you know, move things through. So I think all these type of experiences end up relating back to ultimately uh, about being what kind of family you may want to raise, right? One day and uh, the type of parent you want to be a husband or spouse or significant other, as well as the family and business that you one day will run or own or become part of. And also ownership today and leadership are two different things. Very few people can do both. And also uh, you can still be an outside owner of a business and have a tremendous sway because it's the value you can bring to that leader, that primary owner or primary person running the business. And that's what's key today about I see Missy out there. It seems to be there in way too much talk and not enough action and people really pulling through. And that's Amen to that. Yeah. And you said something else that I think is so important and you know, it's going to ruffle a few people's feathers, maybe the way that I put it. But, you know, he said, okay, yeah, the, the thing that your first boss really um, liked about you, saw in you was not sugarcoating it, telling you how you see it and being honest, right? And being upfront. And man, in this day and age, it seems like we're so afraid of hurting people's feelings and saying the thing that somebody doesn't want to hear that sometimes we won't say anything at all. And I think that's going back to your point you just made. If you can't have that open and honest communication, even if it seems like rude or, you know, like leaders don't like to be told when they're wrong, right? No one really likes to be told when they're wrong, but a good leader, somebody that actually understands it will appreciate and respect other people's opinions. Don't you agree with that? Oh, absolutely. I, you know, it's, it's interesting. You said that I think in today, this remote working world, I'm not sure if people understand how to figure out how to have a discussion. You know, the old around the um, water cooler or just in an office, it just opens up a lot of different things that you learn by just passing by someone. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, but leaders today have had to learn and owners had to learn how to become 
transition to also being able to handle a remote workforce? And how do you move things forward? And that's what I think is some ways easier when you're dealing in software than you are maybe in, in certain other type of you know products and so forth like that. But to answer your question and to get more into it, I think there's a there's a disconnect today where there's some who just feel that they can say anything, do anything, feel like anything, and try to dictate policy to the company, as opposed to looking at it and setting up an environment where everybody's on the same page and their words and ideas are valued, but they can't take personally any criticism that may come up. On the other hand, if somebody brings up an idea and criticizes it, they cannot be malicious about it. It has to have a very positive view on it. You can disagree and put it forward. And I remember, I'll give you an example. Um, we were in a meeting, we had about 10 people in it, and this uh, young woman uh, brought up an, an idea. And someone uh, went after it pretty good. I mean, not in, not in a personal way. And I could see things were going very well in the meeting. And she was about to cry, which would not have been a good thing. And by the way, I'm not trying to make a stereotype. I'm just giving you. So I called, I called, took a break, talked to her outside for a minute. And she said, I know you said to me that it's always, if it doesn't, if you don't bring up the idea, it will never be get around. And the best ideas come up for me, Bill, bring it. Yeah, anyways, I said, yes. She says, I said, everything's going to be okay. I said, just remember we are in a discussion now that we would never have gotten to if you haven't raised this whole point and brought it up. We will be far better off. And by the way, even if it was 99% different, the fact that it was brought up, fully discussed, and, and people understand that you can have diverse viewpoints, which is missing today, that um, it's important. As long as everybody's on the same page, a lot of times you're going to get the same result and you're going to walk out of this out of a meeting with the feeling that everybody was heard, it was fully discussed, and we came up with the best decision. Or even if it wasn't the perfect decision that you thought was right, it was still the best decision that the group felt, if you understand what I'm saying. And also, part of the leader is trying to, and this is where I learned where I went to college at Occidental College, which is Try to put yourself in somebody else's shoes. So um, I'll give you that again where I was uh, a hypocrite. I thought that model you had was one of the most dumbest ideas, thoughts I ever heard of. And my roommate in college told me that, you know, he, one of the reasons he came to Oxy was for its international relations and model UN program. And I just thought that was a, like seriously one of the dumbest things I ever heard. Long story short, I ended up being the secretary general of model UN and realized how valuable it was to be able to understand other countries' positions and do these type of things and put yourself in somebody else's shoes. Because if you're not, how do you have the best customer service in the world? Or how do you even have great customer service or employer relations unless you understand what it's like to be in somebody else's shoes? Or how would you want to do it? And how would you want it to be expressed with the day when you have the chance to be able to lead and so forth. So these are all the things about your experiences, whether it's digging ditches, picking up rocks, right? Driving trucks, uh, to developing software, to learning, traveling, being in a large family, small family, religion, whatever it is, it's part of it. This is all part of your DNA. It eventually becomes part of your experiential DNA, which becomes all part of your leadership fabric and communications. And by the way, 
life has never been perfect for me. I've made a lot of mistakes, but that's how you learn too. stay curious. And, um, you know, and people like you are great at helping people like me and others to make sure we stay in line enough or to keep us out of our inveterate tinkering mode or whatever it is. You know, I've been saying as an entrepreneur, yeah, these are the type of things that you need the backbone of, but you also have to understand when you're alone that you may have to understand from three different positions uh, what it's like to be able to do something and what are the ramifications. And once you do that, you can design software, you can design leaderships, and you can learn how to communicate, I think, extraordinarily effectively. But you got to get people, everybody on the same page. And that's why, Jeff, you know, people kind of laugh at me and they say, like, what's the most important document you can have in a company? I always say, like, an employee manual. And they all look at me, are you kidding? Well, I think it's one of the best places for a leader or the owner of a business to put out there what's what's so great about their company, right? Why should you want to join us? Why are we so happy to have you? What we stand for. And once you get that, as opposed to letting some, and I'm a lawyer too, letting some lawyer just write it and put your legalese <laughs> in there, you know, uh, it it becomes a document that becomes unreadable. Yeah. Become human. Don't take the legal stuff out of it. I don't mean, you can accomplish the same thing with people understanding in, in, in solid, easy to read English or whatever language you are, that these, this can come through. And um, so at the end of the day, do people want to work with you? Do you want to work with them? And together, are you better together? Or are you better apart? And if you're better together, these are the people you want. If you're better apart, you know, you wish them good luck, right? But, um, you know, these are the things that we all learn. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it builds your character too, right? And I want to hit on something you said, which is, you know, that the notion that you get everybody on the same page is, is really important from a, a cultural perspective and moving things forward. But there's a, a lesson that I learned, I think it was Jack Welch, um, I have written this, he said, if I'm in a room of really smart people and I pose an idea out there and I throw it out there and everybody agrees with me, then I'm going to tell everybody to go think about it for 24 hours and get back to me, or I'm just going to throw out the idea altogether because it means that I probably just have a bunch of yes men, right? I have a whole bunch of people that just want to agree with me. And I, I'm a contrarian by nature. Growing up, I was always the, the guy that was getting in trouble for voicing my opinion maybe too loudly or in a, a, an inappropriate time or place or way. Um, but I, I, I really didn't understand that until all of a sudden I became the leader and I was in charge of companies and helping. And, and I got to this point in my career and I, it happens gradually. I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but you know, when you're younger, you can't wait to be that executive, that person that everybody looks up to and respects. And then all of a sudden, one day it happens, you're like, well, that was kind of weird. But the way I, it happened to me was all of a sudden everybody's agreeing with me. And like, I know that I have good ideas, but they're not the best ideas in the world. And I found it strange that it was hard to get other people to take a contrarian viewpoint and to actually voice those opinions. I think that hits on what you were saying, which is you need to create an environment where it's okay for people to critique, criticize, have opposing viewpoints, and they don't feel like they're going to be shut down or made to cry or anything like that. Um, but you also want, and you want to foster those, those minds, those people around you, they're going to have opinions. Absolutely. I think with the Jack, that's an interesting um, example or story about Jack Welch. I look at it um, a tiny bit differently, but I think that, by the way, no disrespect 
disrespect to Mr. Welch. Uh, of course. I mean, yeah. he's no longer with us, but the, um, I try to do it this way. If I find that I'm, everybody's agree with me, I take the con, I take the con, even if it's my own suggestion and idea. So I try to do it that way. Secondly, I love history and I think you can, um, most people today seeing history starts from their birthday forward and, um, they're really missing a lot. And, but even if you take someone like John Kennedy, who we used to have people always present the pro and the con to it before making some key decisions. Or one of the best things is to have the person who uh, opposed each other flip and, and uh, argue, uh, argue the opposite sides. I don't mean argue, like an but, Oxford you know, debate almost, yeah. right? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, what, no matter what idea it is, there's usually some downside, even out of a hundred percent scheme, even if it's 99.9%, there's still something there that potentially is, you know, can go wrong or, you know, not the best or, but however you define it. But at the same time, the need to endlessly debate and go through things is also can drive uh, a negative view of the whole situation. So you have to understand the, what really needs to be debated because there's some things that are really not negotiable. You have to understand that you're, as a leader, there are certain principles you stand for. There are certain core ones in your company. And if they're violated or whatever, everybody understands that. And once everybody understands that, it makes these meetings go better. And sometimes the boss, by the way, just needs to get a, uh, just drop its guard for a little bit and just talk again and get flush things out of their own mind. So yeah. where some people think there's a waste of time, like, why are we here for an hour you know, sometimes you just got to let it out what you're thinking about and bring it out yourself. So, and you can be the bad guy in that respect. But as far as Mr. Wolf said, I agree. And, um, you know, there's a saying goes, if you're the smart, if you think you're the smartest guy in the room, you better find another room. So um, I think that's, you know, part of it. And one of the most important things is to check your ego at the door and that, um, you know, if you can't get your head through the door, then you realize before you get there that there is a problem. So, um, and also sometimes you have to understand before a meeting or before you go into something, um, I'll give you an example, like a podcast or something, whatever it is, any type of, the last thing you want to do is have some big confrontation that's just going to just set you off and put you in a bad mood or bad spirit that's going to ruin the entire occasion. So hopefully you have people around you that realize that before something that unless it's an absolute, you know, state of emergency that you've got to let people alone because this question or what's bugging them can wait for an hour or so after a meeting and things like that, because we're all human. And I just think, uh, you know, in, in that respect, but the most important thing is to have a real good path to success to have a plan drawn up. And by the way, one of the most difficult things about innovation and being an innovator is you have to put together a product, particularly in software, that the marketplace may never have seen. And you have to be years ahead in design and going for it and be willing to put your money and life forward on the bet that you are going to be taking a new product to market, a software product that hasn't been done before, for example, that nobody has seen, 
And you're going to have to bet on yourself that you're going to have to be able to find the show them the way forward. In other words, I don't know about you, but I didn't, uh, I never thought about an iPod or a minivan, but when I saw it, I go, Oh, like Steve Jobs said, a thousand signs on your sleeve or wow. You can now all of a sudden open up the back door, right? And have your groceries or slided door for kids. And all. you know, what a great idea. But I got to tell you, I didn't go to bed at night thinking about that, but right. someone did, right? Someone had this in their head and they didn't bring around these focus groups and say, oh, can you t- help us fix our problems? What do you want? You know, like Henry Ford said, you know, if I asked my customers what they wanted, they would have said a faster horse. So, um, you know, that's one of the challenges today of being a leader and an entrepreneur and even being an entrepreneur, which is an entrepreneur, I guess, within a large company. And do you ever heard about the 3M example in the post-it notes? Um, you know, the person who invented the post-it notes was got his boss got so fed up with him, basically put him in a closet with no desk, nowhere to work as he refused to quit working on the project. But he had sent these post-it notes all the way through their companies to these C-suites as ministry to their assistants. And when they couldn't get them anymore, they went to their boss, they went to their boss and said, what's going on? I can't do my job anymore. And they're the CEOs and the CFOs of the world said, what's going on? I had no idea. Get this fixed. I don't want my people upset. So, Guess what? He got his desk back, chair. They started making post-its. And it's been a pretty successful business for it, right? So, I'd say so. On almost know, every desk in the country right now. <laughs> yeah. So it, it just shows you that, you know, about, like you said, sometimes you ruffle feathers, right? And it's always great to have people behind you who feel like they're ruffling the right feathers. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, I'd say we want to transition and talk about how this impacts investing in these types of companies. But, you know, everything you're giving here as far as leadership and entrepreneurship and, you know, being that innovative thought leader, it's very difficult to be that person. But sometimes it's even harder as the the person who's getting pitched, right? On the receiving end, like I said, the the post-it note example, right? No one saw this, the the minivan, the, the iPod. Somebody has to take a leap of faith, right? The inve- whether it's an investor, an outside investor, it could be a manager, it could be a chairman of the board who says, yeah, let's take a, a leap of faith. Like um, I did projects on Skunk Works a long time ago when, you know, the they were saying, okay, well, we need to create bigger, faster, better jets and we need to fight the Soviets and we need to have better equipment, like, but no one could come up with it. And so they created these, these really secretive ways of going about it. But somebody needs to take a flyer on a person at some point. And I know that you have the company Deal Rocket that that helps that happen a little bit more. We'll get into that in a minute. But as an investor, as somebody who's taken probably thousands of pitches, how do you isolate the ones that you think fit that mold of being innovative, being ahead of their time, being able to see it through, having those leadership capabilities? Like, what are the things that you're looking at when it comes to these these different innovative companies and entrepreneurs? It's a great question, and um, I'm not really big on a pitch. I think a pitch is one of the most over. I'm very much in a minority, and also in the minority about an MVP. That's okay. You and I can be the minority of two if we need to. And also in a minority on the minimally viable product. And um, feel free to come back and ask me about that regarding my company because I think that might find helpful. But um, I look at it this way. I try to look through, listen, 
And sometimes it really hits. And the other times when you have a conversation and you sit down with someone and you can elicit out of them because you realize that they've been sitting there probably with years stuck in their gut or in their head. And they're just trying to work the flush this thing out. And they're, they know the darn product works or is that good or that tested, but they, they can't get that lousy first sentence out that tells it like, what's the whole world should just be dying over. And um, there's been a lot of pitches that people have invested in that they've had all wind up and no fastball. So I try to look for the fastball. Is there substance behind it? Is there merit? And is this individual capable of taking it through? And if they've already done it or been doing it before, and this is what they need, and this is how they see the market, you know, that's that's one thing. Um, if it's just on the merits of whether this is a good idea, and that's one of the things I've tried to do is try to take the risk out of it. Like, we took the risk and funded the entire project ourselves. You see what I'm saying? And all that. So it's ready to go. There's other people that will do it based on a concept and then want to work forward. And... Um, I think for what I look for is first the person or people, you know, making the pitch. Is the idea a good one? Is the concept a good one? Is the product a good one? Is there a way I can see it through? Or maybe they have proven that over the years that every time everybody says no, that they figured a way through at anything that they've developed or created which is a good thing to know. So that's part of like a, a track record or something like that. But on the other hand, if you can imagine, you know, like imagine this, I say, put me, I sometimes I ask them, they use the imagine word, imagine what should I be imagining about your product or what's the end result? And, you know, like for us, we use the, we can help people, awesome people do fabulous stuff. Okay. Helping people, Businesses borrow full ideas, become extraordinary together fast, or even further, we go helping people, businesses, and powerful ideas who would not otherwise meet become extraordinary together fast. So you're not pitching a you're not pitching a commodity now. It's not necessarily based on price. You're based you're basing something on that you're taking care of a problem. I may not know what I may not know what the product is yet, right? But I know when you're solving a product, it's key to me. So like I'm an entrepreneur, what's the problem out there? I may not know where and how to begin. Who are the right people I need to meet, right? How do I get before these people? How do I get all this expertise and talk to people like you and bring them all at one time? Why does it have to be so damn hard? How come I have to pay the W tax all the time and spend 80% of my time doing non-business when I should be focusing on the business? So that's the conjuring up you can get. On the investor side, think about it the other way around. Less than 1% of Americans have any investment in startups or in small business. That's an astronomical amount. While the higher-ups could have up to 50%. That's not right. That's an imbalance there. So why does it have to be so hard? So it's not just the entrepreneur. It's also the entrepreneurial investor, right? If you think about it. I think there's a lot of next actors out there. I really do. I think there's a lot of people that don't want to leave their day job, but would like to get their foot in the water and be able to get involved. But how do they do that without doing one way or the other? So I just, you know, for me, I just look, I'm a logistics person. I've always tried to figure out a path to which is the fastest, simplest, most efficient way to do so. 
And on the other hand, if you're cutting, if you're doing something that if you're taking two steps instead of six, Jeff, you realize you're cutting a corner and it's going to eventually bite you in the butt. But if you're taking six, yeah, if you're taking six and you need to get the two, you better get the two. So it's that, you know, understanding of the balance and the flow. And if this, if this entrepreneur or person can show that flow and how to get there, uh, I think the rest, you know, really can go well. And then there's other people in the room who can be part of that conversation and articulate other things and bring it in. It's a way of, of realizing that, hey, you know, in less than an hour, you may have just have figured this all out, right? And sitting down and getting before people. And that's what happens when you get like-minded people together and all. You don't have to just be in your own company. You could just have people who show up and uh, want to be involved in a deal team, right? That's one of the things that we do and, and, and get them together. And they're trying to find the best solution for everybody, you know, going forward. But on the other side of things, I just think that um, there's so much out there in the innovation ecosystem that is not coming to market, that's being left on the table because people are saying, how, why, why is it so hard? It doesn't have to be. And I know people like you are working your tail off to make the open up the world, right? To open up this pipeline. And, Absolutely. Um, and that's one of the things that we do at our, at our company. And as a matter of fact, um, if you don't mind, if I segue back, the minimally viable product they all talk to you about, got to get that out there as soon as possible. Well, it was interesting. Um, I had written a couple of pieces for a major uh, media publication for some reason they asked me if I would write and they went viral. Okay, great. You know, wow. I mean, I made like a top 10 pieces and I was like, I didn't know if that, I take it that was good, but believe me, I had no background in the whole situation. But I received the amount of emails that I received from people who find you who kept saying, keep going, keep moving. You're talking to me. You know, this is great. It took me a week to respond. And my wife, who's not the risk taker in our relationship, said to me, and you need a nudge. And this is an important factor that, you know, everybody thinks all these entrepreneurs, they want to take risks, they'll run through walls and do this. But there's someone there that always needs to put up like a pat on the back, on the butt, put their arm around them, or just give them that little bit to move them forward. And my wife said to me, she's the best. And she said, you know, all those emails that you received, you could knock on doors for the next five years every day, and you would still not be able to get the feedback and responses you've got in a shorter period of time, which is also one of the miracles of technology. And if you don't think that technology is a miracle, then you better start with that aspect of it and realize that you have a privilege if you're going to get involved in this space to make it better. Okay. But... She said, David, they're talking to you. They're telling you to keep going. And I was like, whoa. And she said, you know, all that, uh, this is my words, not her, but all that, um, I'll put it politely, discussion about the how these markets are so inefficient and the little guy is just getting destroyed and uh, all these type of things and they're, don't know where how to begin and same with the other investors and people in the community. And you get bad fits out there because people feel like they have limited choices. And when it gets before them, they either have to do it or not do it. and may never see another 
opportunity again. Okay. So with that said, I, and then she said to me, this is a great time for you to do it. Either do it or stop talking about it. So interesting. So I was pretty convinced at the time, and I've had this idea in my head for the past 15 or 20 years. And it took this moment to realize that there are other people out there who kind of felt the same way I did, which is you know, good. I, I felt I had the pulse in the market. And then I decided I need more. So I wrote emails to five of the largest financial services firms in the country or the world, unsolicited. Put a paragraph together, just see if I get feedback, you know? And then one of them said to me, uh, I won't forget, it was Wells Fargo. I sent it a Thursday at 4, 8 a.m. the next morning, they called me. I almost fall off my chair. My old banker doesn't get back to me that fast. <laughs> and they said to me, yo, this is one of the most exciting, this like, looks exciting concept for decades, you know, and ecosystem investing and this and that. And I mean, we're going forth and back about, bottom line, they said to me, the good news is we're big. The bad news is we're big. And your job is to fix our bad news. And they said, you know, are you've ever heard of the term MVP? And I said, minimally viable product? I said, yes. We hate them. Oh, everybody's been telling me that's exactly where you should go. Really? They said, you know why we hate them? It's because they don't work for us. We're big. We have several hundred thousand employees. You know, we have 3 million small business customers. We have another 10, 15 million or more in our, what you call ecosystem between our divisions, our employees, our customers, our referral partners, our, you just, come on, it's easy for us to get to that number. And then they said, you know, assuming your platform, now we hadn't written a district code at the time. <laughs> Assuming your platform can do what it says, how do we know it works? We know you could do the invite. And I said, what do you mean? This is what I'm talking about, the MVP. Everybody shows us like five examples. Oh, they work great. And then when we try to scale it, it's like a boat anchor goes right to the bottom of the ocean. This is not where you want to be a submarine, right? This is where you want to be as a wacket, like you say, correct? (laughs) So... Anyways, I said, well, what do you want? What can you do? And I was waiting for that butt to drop. And they said, we want a fully built out platform from you. I said, really? We hadn't written a stitch yet. And what else did you need? Because we'd like to see 10, 15,000 real mock users on it. And by the way, you can use mock users and create them like they're real. That's another thing about understanding how other people think. So instead of taking my win and going home, I said, what if we did 50 to 100,000? She said, even better. So that's how we became what we are. And instead of becoming MVP, I said to them, oh, so you want me to solve your most valuable problem. So if you think about it in that terms, are you, what's your prod, what what's your most valuable prod, problem? What are you trying to solve for others that includes that? 
And what could be done? Is there something out there? Eventually, I realized that both the big guy and the little guy have the same problem, but a different way. The big guy has this, all these people that they don't know how to monetize or put together. And the little guy can't get the capital, meeting the right people before them. And they have the innovation, but the big guy, which the big guy doesn't have. So how do you bring the two together and allow them to buyerize the company and let them be the hero while everybody else benefits from this? And if you follow that strategy is that by rewarding people ahead of time, you're going to build unbelievable loyalty and probably people that purchase your products that in ways that you never thought possible and in sums never thought possible. So that's one of the things that we've tried to do and, um, and try to thread that needle. And the most difficult thing is really is to how to get people, like you said, to envision it, that they can see it. And that's why I decided that it was worth, even though when Wells Fargo's management, um, they kind of blew up to say the least, they had their problems, that that lesson, and I decided it was well worth my time and effort to go ahead and fund this thing through and to take us where we're about to go today. And so from an investor standpoint, segueing back, I try to look at it from both my journey, from all sides of the equation. What I would like to receive as a customer, is this something I may want to buy as a customer? Is this a need I have? Or even though it's, if it is, then I could be a customer and also get the benefit of the product, right? You know what I mean? If I want to invest. So can I imagine myself using this product or getting involved? Also, there has to be a meeting in the minds here, Jeff, like you talked about. Like, what is the one who's putting this together, the leader of this business want, like I may want to be, to get very much involved. So we have to understand like, what am I getting for my money? What does each side expect for each other? You know what I mean? Like, what is it? Do I just want your money as the leader or do I really want your help? Right. And if so, what's the expertise that everybody can help bring to the table? And these are the most important things to get out ahead of time. And that's what we've tried to sort out, you know, in our platform as well. And that at the end of the day, if you can get like-minded people singing from the same hymnal, your chances of success are so much better than trying to have to go at it on your own trying to have a license on brains and trying to make the same mistakes that everybody else has done over the years of what my friend David Meltzer calls a dummy tax. And why can't, why can't we get rid of that? You know, this has to be, it's time to put this to an end. And, you know, it shows like yourself that you're bringing together and your commitment to the little guy investors and making a better world out of this. It, it, I think proves my point and your point as well. And, at the end of the day, uh, since October 7th, I think we've really seen a, a lot different world out there and what's really come out of the woodwork. And I'll tell you this, when the innovation ecosystem is humming, when the small business ecosystem is moving, and when more and more people are getting involved, there's less time for these ridiculous arguments. And because when people have investment in businesses, and they feel they have access and opportunity, the whole world and all these outlooks change. And these people who start shouting from the hilltops about this or that become outliers because people realize when you're in business, the color of your skin, your gender, whatever it is, is really irrelevant because 
That's one of the beauties of business is that you don't go in there trying to determine like political views. You want people to flock to you, right? You want buyerize. That's my term. It's a trademark of ours. You want to try to buyerize your business. You know, it's an interesting thing that uh, Tom Saul from uh, the Hoover Institute wrote, and he changed a lot of my views and customer experience a long time ago, but he wrote, an article, he said that Rosa Parks, when she got on the bus in 1954, you know, Birmingham, Alabama, and the bus driver said, you go to the back. And she said, no. He said, just think how history might be different if that bus company that several years ago was owned by a private company that was taken over by the city would never do anything like that. What private company would ever want to put any of their customers in a different position, in a position of shame, in a position of segregating them. You wouldn't. It's the dumbest. That's what's the great thing about business. This is what changes the world. This is what brings things together. And the fact with technology and silos today, what I love about the digital that we can help provide is the silos go bye-bye. You can bring entrepreneurship pretty quickly to Africa, if you wanted to, in different parts. You can get by different things. You have the chance to bring all these people together. And now because of technology, and we are the guardians of that, we have the absolute need to take a look at, understand what we're producing and realizing where it comes from. And for example, I say to myself every day, even though I can't stand email because there's so much flows into it, what a miracle. The fact is, seriously, <laughs> In five seconds or less, what I seem to you, you can get. I mean, it's, I don't care who you are. If you don't think that's anything, you don't think about where it came from and how it's developing and what can go forward. These are the things that really spark me and make people realize that you have to understand the past to get to your future. And also for the future, you have to understand history and try to not make the same mistakes that others have made. So this is where we have to learn in realizing that, like what you say, they're leaders. But there's also some people are not great leaders, but they're very good visionaries, if you know what I'm saying. They really oh, have absolutely. a pretty good pulse on happening. You have to understand that there's difference in that. So sometimes when you're investing in someone, you have to realize that, whoa, they may be a visionary. Do they have people that could actually do the behind-the-scenes work that needs to be done to get this product or this service or whatever it is to market or how it needs to be done. And that's one of sometimes is the missing piece. So I try to see it from a logistic point of view is we're here. How do we get to there? And I'm just drawing arrows to that person, you know, wear both hats. And many times they can, don't get me wrong. Uh, but these are some of the things you take a look at. And if they can't, maybe they just need uh, six months of guidance. I'm just giving you an example, right? Just for Maybe it's an hour or two a week, just helping them with, you know, keeping them on the right page. But, you know, if you're going to invest in people, which you really are, are they going to also be good at pivoting, right? Sometimes markets change, right? All of a sudden pandemics hit. Like, what are you going to do if something like that happens? And, you know, really good leaders have really shown us different things that have done and, and others have kind of wiltered by the wayside and also... Are they going to get caught up if they do make a lot of money and get caught up in the in the in the great benefits and celebrations of what this could do? Or are they going to look at it as like, 
you know what? I haven't really done anything. I've only scratched the surface and I really want to drive this thing forward even more. Or where are they going to know when to exit? So these are the type of things that Jeff and if you get the right people around you and circle around and bring them together, this is what capital connectedness is. This is really what we talk about helping people, businesses and powerful ideas become extraordinary together fast. And and that's what you're trying to do. I know that I can tell. And, you know, we've had some discussions and, you know, I, Absolutely. I just think. Yeah. And, uh, man, David, there's so much I could go into that. I wish I had all day to just kind of sit and, and fireside chat about this stuff, but couple of things I want to point out that you said, um, you know, I love Henry Ford's quote. I think it, it's used a lot, which is if I ask my customers what they want, they want a faster horse, right? But what did he do instead? He looked around at the world and saw the problem, right? And you know, we don't even have this frame of reference. There's no one alive today that has this frame of reference as far as I know, which is, you know, the the health, human health issue that the, the, was we were dealing with with horses and horse-drawn carriages, the the fact that there were animals dying on the street, the fact that there was, you know, all sorts of problems. But um, I learned recently that the the brownstones, the walk-ups in New York City, those were built so that they didn't have to worry about all the the runoff from the horses into the houses. So they built Mm -hmm. them on fires. You know, that's the problem. So he looked and said, what would it look like if we didn't have these problems? And then he went down that innovative path, which is a lot of what you're talking about. And so I think teasing out that story, teasing out that problem is really important. The, like you were saying with, with uh, Wells Fargo, with the most valuable problem, what is the problem we're solving? There's so much we can go into, but like I said, we're, we're out of time here. David, how can people find you, um, find Deal Rocket and find you online? Oh, sure. Again, thank you very much for your time and what you do, Jeff. Um, how can be found? I'm on LinkedIn. If you'd like to find me there, you can get me at David at Deal Rocket. Dot com and that's I-T-D-E-A-L-R-O-C-K-I-T.com. And um, feel free to take a look at what we're doing. And we're about to make some pretty good noise coming up. So if your audience would like to learn more, or, um, we have many ways to solve the, from the big guy all the way down to the little guy's problems and have fun doing so. So feel free to reach me at either one. And we have another site called Startup Rocket. Again, that's Startup Rocket, R-O-C-K-I-T.com. And Look forward to hearing from everybody. And this is how we learn. Absolutely. Absolutely. We'll we'll make sure we get all that information in the show notes um, and share this out. So for those of you guys that are watching, thanks so much for being here at the Angels Exits and Acquisitions podcast. Really excited about democratizing angel investing and startup investing and and helping these companies grow. David, thank you so much for being here today. Looking forward to uh, following up with you and seeing how everything's going over there at Deal Rocket and Startup Rocket. Great. Thanks, Jeff. Again, thanks for everything, for what you do. And it was a pleasure being here. Absolutely. Thank you. As always, like, subscribe, and share this on your socials if you found this valuable. Take care, everyone. Mm-hmm.